0: Hi everyone, this is Jacob from Attention to Detail. I hope all of our listeners out there are doing well, staying healthy, listening to a little music. I am certainly doing that here in in Michigan. And here on Attention to Detail, we recently completed our 10 Days 10 Mahler Symphonies project where we broke down all of the Mahler Symphonies. If you get a chance, I'd encourage you to go and listen to one or more of those breakdowns uh, really dive into a symphony, especially if you have a little extra time on your hands. But we got a lot of good feedback and uh, people have been asking for more breakdowns. And so I thought what we might do, actually, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about our next project. Generally here on the podcast, I don't like to break down specific pieces that often because we're really more about universal listening techniques that you can apply where whenever you go to the concert hall Of course we're all in a new situation here where none of us can go to the concert hall at the moment and so I think it's an appropriate time even for us here on the podcast to, to look at some symphonies but as always we want to be doing this in a way that's attention to detail specific it's not it doesn't require any background knowledge in music and we try to apply some of our our techniques so the next, project um, we're going to embark on here is to look at some lesser-known symphonies, symphonies that I'm guessing most of our listeners maybe have never heard of, never encountered, but I'm going to bring back some of the guests that we had for the Mahler Breakdowns, and I want to let each of them choose a lesser-known symphony that they want to highlight as well, because, of course, I have my own personal tastes, but I'm also curious to hear what what they think, and maybe they'll uncover a symphony that I am very unfamiliar with, too. So it's something that I'm looking forward to over the next couple weeks. But we're going to start today with my own choice. I'm doing this, this pod solo, and we'll start with my own choice of lesser-known symphony that I want to highlight, and that is a symphony that I've already mentioned on this podcast before, but Nielsen's Fourth Symphony, the Inextinguishable Symphony. That's its subtitle. And there are many reasons why I want to highlight this this lesser-known piece, the the main one being that it's just an absolutely phenomenal work. But let's those reasons, I think, will make themselves clear as we go along. But let's dive into this piece, to the music, and figure out what makes this particular symphony so incredible to listen to. Just a quick word about Nielsen, the composer, because many of our listeners may have never even heard of Nielsen, the composer, which is fine. He is... He's not one of the composers that we most readily associate with with famous classical musicians. But, but he's a fantastic composer. He's maybe the, the most famous Danish composer to ever live. And in. in a way, he's a musical hero in Denmark. A lot of his works have become anthems for, for Denmark, much in the way that Sibelius's works have become anthems for Finnish independence and things like that. And in fact... Nielsen is often connected with Sibelius because they're both Scandinavian composers. In some ways, their music sounds similar and they both represent kind of a nationalistic identity. That comparison is a little strained and we'll see, if you know the music of Sibelius, we'll see some similarities, but also some big differences in Nielsen. And so I want us to think about Nielsen as his own composer, Um, but... Nielsen grew up in Denmark. He was he was a violinist for a long time. He was very familiar with the classical tradition. Uh, for a while, he was, like most composers of the time, uh, interested in Wagner. I should mention he lived in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And so he was kind of a bridge, like many composers of that time, between Romanticism and Modernism. And all composers... At the turn of the century, we're tasked with this this question of how to deal with Romanticism and how to deal with Modernism. The the advent of composers like Schoenberg, Webern, people who were doing incredibly radical things in the history of music, Stravinsky, and so Nielsen falls, as many composers did, kind of somewhere in the middle between a Romantic and a Modernist. And you'll certainly hear that in his music. The fourth symphony was written between 1914 and 1916, a very eventful period in history during World War I. And in many ways, it sounds and feels like a wartime symphony. The subtitle of Inextinguishable comes from Nielsen himself, and I wanted to read a couple quick quotes from Nielsen himself about this piece, because they're really, really illuminating before we dive into the music. So he says... This symphony evokes the most primal sources of life and the wellspring of life feeling. That is, what lies behind all human, animal, and plant life as we perceive or live it. It is not a musical, program-like account of the development of a life within a limited stretch of time and space, but an unprogram-like dip right down to the layers of the emotional life that are still half-chaotic and wholly elementary. In other words, the opposite of all program music, despite the fact that this sounds like a program. So that's going to be really important when we listen to this piece, because I think Nielsen is right. Of course, he's the composer, but, but that's what I hear in the music as well, as this real uh, conflict or challenge between, is this a piece of program music? Is this a piece of what we call absolute music, music without a program? We've seen this in Mahler before. Mahler treads this line very expertly. And the same goes for Nielsen. He's very adamant that this is not a programmatic piece, but he even says things later in this quote that kind of contradict himself. And And so there are programmatic elements to this piece. I think there's something of a narrative we can determine, but also, as he says, in many ways it's it's larger than that, more lofty than that. It's It's somehow absolute. That's part of what I think makes it such an interesting symphony to listen to. One other quote I want to read from from a similar passage. He says, for music is life, whereas the other arts only represent and paraphrase life. Life is indomitable and inextinguishable. The struggle, the wrestling, the generation, and the wasting away go on today as yesterday, tomorrow as today, and everything returns. Once more, music is life, and like it, it is inextinguishable. So the inextinguishable part of this symphony is meant to represent this kind of inextinguishable will-to-live life force that Nielsen kind of equates with music. He sees music as the ultimate expression of that life force, that will-to-live. So with that, let's dive in to the actual symphony and we'll see how he captures some of these ideas. So... This is a wartime symphony, and we start with effectively a battle scene. Now, the form of this symphony, it's in four movements, um, like a classical symphony, and certain elements feel very classical. In fact, we'll see that the first movement, if you've listened to our previous breakdowns, we've talked a lot about sonata form. There's kind of a sonata form to the first movement, and there's kind of a standard four-movement structure. But in other ways, this is a really through-composed, improvisatory type piece without much uh, traditional form. So we'll examine how it straddles the line between a real classical symphony and more of a modern take on symphonic form. So we start with a battle scene, as I mentioned, if we want to see this as our our first theme in our sonata form, that, that can work as well. But it's really turbulent, aggressive, Fighting music, and we're thrown right into the midst of some sort of battle. Let's listen to the opening of this Fourth Symphony. So we hear this battle music. One thing Nielsen was a master of was beginning his pieces right in the midst of the action. It's almost like you the, the music is not going and suddenly you've been thrown into the middle of a scene. Um, many of his symphonies open this way and it, it aligns with this kind of philosophy for him that that music is somehow representative of this this life force, you're you're in the midst of a battle constantly, and so his pieces really pick up right there, and they, they often don't start with any sort of introduction per se. Another huge element of Nielsen's music is the idea of kind of melodic, thematic disintegration. We've seen a little bit of this in Mahler. It's very similar to Sibelius in some ways as well, but these passages tend to disintegrate, peter out, and then some new idea will be presented. So that's what happens at the beginning here with this battle scene. It, it disintegrates. We get much quieter. And then we hear this sort of fragmentary music. But the passage from the opening has disintegrated, but we still have remnants of the opening battle theme being played by solo string instruments. So here's a little bit of the fragmentary, if you want to think of it as transition music in our sonata to our second theme. That's what we hear after this, this battle scene. So you'll hear many passages in Nielsen. Here's the similarity with Sibelius is passages like this, where it feels like you're almost wandering through the woods. You've lost your way. It's very fragmented. It's very kind of ephemeral. These are the passages that feel very kind of Scandinavian in a way, and that I think people latch on to when they connect Nielsen so closely with Sibelius. So then... Out of this fragmentary music comes a theme, and it's going to be the most important theme of this symphony, what we might call the inextinguishable theme. It's presented first by the clarinets. It's an expansive theme. One thing that Nielsen was a master of was creating vast uh, kind of auditory expanses. They feel like soundscapes, and this theme is soaring, and it feels really inextinguishable. So we hear that presented amidst this kind of fragmentary music. It almost just sneaks up on us, but a masterful first introduction of this inextinguishable theme. So we hear the clarinets play this inextinguishable melody to begin. They play it in the key of A major. It's not actually the key that we want to arrive at at this symphony. That's going to be E major, closely related key to A major, but we haven't arrived yet. And so like many composers, especially of the late 19th century, did, our theme is originally presented in the wrong key and we have somewhere to go. So this theme, like the first theme, kind of disintegrates, peters out over a long period of time. We get this anticipation of some music that we'll hear a little later, this kind of hiccup idea which will dominate the second part of this first movement, the development, as we call it. But then we hear a really interesting passage With something with a a line in the viola section that really sticks out. It almost feels like bullets from a gun. It's really jarring, and it's one of the things that Nielsen does over and over in this symphony is introduce these jarring, warlike figures. So let's hear that passage that comes right before the closing material of our first section, our exposition. So we'll hear the violas play these, this kind of bullet-like passage. And then you hear the closing section, this really triumphant, resolute transformation of this inextinguishable theme. So here's that, that really interesting passage. hear some of that resolute, triumphant music, a transformation of the inextinguishable theme, and interestingly, when it first comes in for a brief moment, it's in our, cor- our correct key, the key that we're aiming for of E major. But just to give a little music theory tangent here, E major is very closely as I related, as I mentioned, to A major, the key that we've already heard. And E major is what we call the dominant. So if we hear something like this, that's an E chord. That feels like it wants to resolve. It wants to resolve to something called A major. And so E very naturally slips into A as a sort of resolution. Now that's going to be important for us to remember because the, the theme was first introduced in A major and now we hear a brief moment of E major. But in this case, that's not a true E major. That's the dominant thing that I was just talking about of A. And so we go back to the key of A major, the wrong key, for now E is just simply a a secondary key, one that gets us to our final destination of A and later it will be transformed into the ultimate goal key of this movement. But now we slip back into A and we have a real Mahlerian moment where we get an anticipation of what we're going to hear at the very close of this symphony. It's almost like a breakthrough, and we hear this passage that's going to come back at the very, very end of the symphony. But as I mentioned, this first time we hear this, wrong key. We've hit the key of E, we saw it briefly, but we slip back to the key of A, which feels like our home base for this whole first movement, and we hear this triumphant, blazing coda to the first section of this first movement. So as always, this disintegrates as well. And we slip into the second section of this first movement, the development section. We hear another sequence of this bullet-type music. And then we find ourselves effectively in another battle scene, similar to the very opening of this piece. And this battle scene goes on for a while. But I want to play for you a passage in the middle of this battle scene, a very evocative passage. One of the passages that makes it seem like this might actually be a programmatic piece in a certain way because we can hear the inextinguishable theme fighting to try to get out of this, this battle music. It's very picturesque, very evocative. And so I want to play for you that passage. It's one of the passages that feels like there has to be some program here. You can hear our hero or whoever it might be struggling, trying to get out of this turmoil, this battle, whatever kind of existential battle that may actually represent. That passage is really vivid. You can hear the woodwinds screaming out the inextinguishable melody, but it gets quashed. And like so much of of Nielsen's music, this, this battle scene disintegrates as well. We hear more of this inextinguishable, fragments of this inextinguishable theme. They start coming in canon, which means that they enter at different times. And then finally we come to the recapitulation, which is the last section of our sonata form, the last section of this first movement. And like most recapitulations, we hear the beginning music again, the same battle scene. This time, we go along the same path as the exposition, but the inextinguishable theme starts emerging earlier, and we start hearing fragments of it. And then we get this fantastic passage where, harmonically, in terms of our key, we've been talking about keys of A major, we touch on A major a few times, But we really don't know where our home base is. It's a harmonically ambiguous passage, which makes us feel a little bit suspended. And then somehow, through a kind of sleight of hand, he jolts us right into the key of E major, the key that we've been aiming for. And we hear this same material that we heard, the breakthrough material at the end of the first section, this time in the correct key of E major, so we've arrived It's somehow we've found the key that we're looking for, but we found it in the most inorganic way. We just kind of fell into it. And so this is not supposed to be some sort of final arrival. We get a even more vivid glimpse of what's to come. Now we're in the right key, but still we got there through through kind of inauthentic means but here's that passage the second breakthrough moment towards the end of the first movement where we hear this triumphant inextinguishable theme called out once more now in the correct key of E major. As with so much Nielsen, as we've mentioned, this also disintegrates. You hear it there at the end of the clip. And this time it disintegrates to a really barren scene, just a lone timpani and a few solo instruments playing. And then out of this barrenness, we find the second movement. This, this symphony is played continuously, so there's no pauses between movements. They bleed right into each other. And the second movement somehow just kind of emerges And it's a nice little intermezzo movement, one of, in my mind, one of the most beautiful inner movements ever written. It's just a phenomenal short little piece. And I'll play for you the the opening theme, so simple but yet so beautiful, could have been written by by Brahms, Um, a fantastic little intermezzo theme. So here's the beginning of the second movement that comes almost surprisingly suddenly out of the barrenness of of what's left of the first movement It's a really poignant moment where you, you suddenly get this simple tune, almost a folk-like tune that comes out of what feel like the remnants of a big battle. Uh, it's, it's like you, you cut from the, the battle scene, the heroism, all of the big players, the, the politicians, the uh, generals, to a nice little rustic country scene and you see a, a private little view of the countryside amidst all of this this war triumph that's that's going on and then we get a contrasting theme to this intermezzo theme interestingly this theme is in g major and our contrasting theme is in c sharp or d flat major the furthest possible key but i also love this contrasting theme it's related to the first theme and it sounds almost like a baroque dance or some sort of ancient, it almost reminds me of the scene in the Zeffirelli production of Romeo and Juliet, uh, at the dance where they're dancing together. It's the most refined, uh, kind of step dance that, that these, these royalty are, are doing in some, some sort of elegant Victorian-esque dance party. And so here's this Contrasting second theme of the second movement, one of the most beautiful passages I think Nielsen ever wrote. So this movement, a little bit like a lot of pieces by Sibelius, seems to wander along and get a little bit lost in the woods. We, we go on various meandering paths down, down little nooks and crannies. Um, and it's in an ABA form, so so these ideas come back. The B section is where we kind of wander through the woods, and then we come back to this, this beautiful intermezzo theme. So we get this nice little respite from from the the battle of the first movement. And then we come to the most enigmatic movement of the the symphony, the third movement. It's kind of a slow movement, but it doesn't really serve a standard symphonic purpose. And it starts very abruptly. I'll play you the opening of this movement. It's hard to know exactly what to make of, of this particular passage. We get a long passage of the string section, first it starts with the violins playing by themselves fortissimo. This is a technique, if you listen to a Mahler breakdown, sometimes Mahler used to jarring effect and Nielsen does it excellently here as well. And the the rest of the string section picks this up and there's a long passage where they're playing very loudly and intensely like we just heard, and then as always it disintegrates into this sort of string quartet setting where the solo instruments play. And again, we hear the idea, we hear the key of E major here, and that's going to be important. We, we've touched again on, on the key that we're aiming for. And like many standard symphonies, Beethoven, Brahms, we have to transform through the many movements to eventually arrive at the key of, the, the final key of E major that's going to feel like a real resolution. So it's important for us to touch on it here in, in the slow movement as well. So here's that passage. Some new thematic ideas are presented that are going to be important here, but also we're in the key of E major, which is, is very significant. So this string quartet passage goes on for a while, that falling melodic idea that you heard in the woodwinds becomes really important and we keep hearing that over and over. And then we come to another passage, one of these passages like we've already had, where we get this really jarring figure that enters the scene kind of out of nowhere. This time we hear it in the woodwinds, but it seems very similar in a certain way to that viola bullet moment that we had earlier. And so here's that passage now in the third movement where the woodwinds enter this kind of pastoral, placid scene with this very abrasive, gruff figure. hear the woodwind section playing that really bullet-like figure similar to what the violas had played earlier and we hear that falling figure, maybe the main theme of this third movement calling out, trying to be heard over this this ruckus that the woodwind section is playing. Very similar to the first movement where the inextinguishable theme was trying to call out and be heard over over everything else that that was going on in in this battle. Now, this figure grows in intensity, the woodwind figure, it becomes a fugue almost, and it really builds, uh, and it arrives at this very important climax, again in E major, and I want to play for you that climax as well, maybe the, the top, the arch of this, this third movement, where again, we heard the E major in this very little placid pastoral section, but now it's, it's reached full force here in the, towards the end of the third movement. And here I think we might get a clue into the potential meaning of this third movement, at least for me personally, this is what I take from it, is that the first and, as we'll see, the last movements are both battle scenes and they both they deal with humanity as a whole. You know, battles are, are among many people. They have heroes, but these are dealing with large issues that relate to humanity, even this, this inextinguishable will to life, if you want to call it that, this inextinguishable idea is something that's, that's universal, according to Nielsen. This third movement feels almost personal. And so we've, uh, retracted the lens in a way and gone inside the mind of a single person to examine these, these same ideas, but on a, on an individual, personal level. And so we hear this theme, this falling theme, which might represent, instead of the inextinguishable idea, this might represent a more personal, intimate, uh, kind of unique to each individual idea. And this also achieves something of a culmination in an E major passage right here. But then it disintegrates and we we go back to what you'll soon hear, the fourth movement, which is a more universal full battle type scene. And so that, that's my take of the third movement is that we've retracted the lens. It's similar as in the second movement. We retract the lens from some glorious battle scene to a little country scene. And then we come even closer in to the mind of one single person and see the individual turmoils, the individual struggles, and the individual triumphs of a single individual before we expand the lens once more to get this, this glorious finale. And so I should play for you the transition into the finale. We get another barren passage, very similar to the end of the first movement. We hear a lone oboe playing. We hear remnants of this bullet idea. It's still like like there's a little bit of post-trauma from these these bullets, and we hear it very briefly in this transition. And then it leads into one of the most well-known among orchestral musician passages because it's a devilishly, devilishly tricky passage for the strings. And I'll play that for you as we transition to the, the fourth movement. This is a classic Nielsen passage where we get this outburst of energy, frenetic energy, very tricky to play. And it leads directly into the fourth movement, which is kind of almost a transformation of the the first movement. We've gone from, we're in another battle scene, it feels like, but now it's almost a dance-like figure that's representing this battle scene. And so we hear a passage that reminds us of the opening, But it also feels like it's almost a dance. And so this battle has become perverted, twisted in some way. I don't know if this is a more optimistic take or a more pessimistic take. I'll leave that up to the listener. But here's the opening of the last movement, a similarly tumultuous scene, but now in a sort of dance-like setting. (laughs) ¶¶ So as this dance battle scene calms down, we then get a fugal, almost perpetual motion-esque passage where, again, fugue means that voices are entering at different times. And I want to play for you this passage as well because it comes back later. It's a very frenetic passage similar to that really crazy violin passage we just heard a minute ago. But this is what comes immediately after this dance-like battle scene. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you heard at the end of that clip is maybe the most famous trait of this symphony. There are two timpani players, not one, but two. And in this last movement, they have what's called a timpani battle. It's a really famous, evocative moment in this symphony and in all of music. And so again, this idea that this is not a programmatic piece, well, in certain ways it certainly is not, but we also hear this timpani battle and it's impossible to not see some sort of duel, whether it's a duel between two individuals, two dueling forces, but certainly these two timpani have to represent something, really evocative passage. So then, classic Nielsen, great compositional trick, out of this first timpani battle we come to this passage marked glorioso, gloriously triumphant, but it's in A major. We're mirroring the first movement again. So we've arrived at our destination, but it's in the wrong key of A major. And this A major disintegrates, as always, and we fall into what might be, again, a development if this is a a last uh, movement sonata like we had in the first movement. And so if we want to call it a development, it's also kind of a free form, this last movement, but we get another long lone oboe passage of one of these barren scenes, we wander through various keys and we hit the key of B major, another really closely related key to E major, this time a fifth above as opposed to a fifth below. And the thing about B major, just as E major resolved to A major because it was a fifth above, B major can resolve to E major because it's a fifth above. So if we're touching on B major now, in some way we, we, we might have transformed what the process that happened earlier in the symphony where E became A. Now B might become E. Don't worry too much about the letters if, you're not a, if you haven't been introduced to music theory. It's not important. But, but the idea is that we've hit a harmony that can resolve to the, the harmony that we're actually aiming for, which is the key of E. And I want to play for you, we find our inextinguishable theme very briefly in this, this key of B major. And I want to play for you that passage before we come to what we might call the recapitulation. We touch this idea once more before we go into the recap where we're going to get the second and most powerful timpani battle. So here's that. It's a really poignant passage where we get this, this moment where we touch the inextinguishable theme again. pause right on that moment, that little brass chorale, and this chorale leads into the second timpani battle, the the big timpani battle this time. And this timpani battle is in the key, we've mentioned it, of B major. So now there's this sense that we are really close to home because we're at B major. We're one step away from getting to the key that we ultimately want to get to of E major. And so then we hear this this timpani battle, the music revs up and we get the real big final clash between these two opposing forces, the two timpani players. And let me play for you that fantastic passage from the end of this, this symphony. We get some of the most intense battle writing, evocative again of the opening, but maybe even more intense now in this last movement. And then, interestingly, we reverse the order of events that we had at the beginning of this movement. If you remember, we had this kind of fugal, perpetual motion-esque passage that leads into the first timpani battle now we have the second timpani battle that leads into this very intense fugal perpetual motion passage to bring us out of this second battle. So let me play for you that, that fugal passages that, uh, passage as well that mirrors the opening of this movement where it led into a timpani battle. Now it's leading us out of a battle. there, we finally arrive at the inextinguishable theme, and we come to this moment where E major finally arrives, and we hear one timpani now playing, one soul timpani, these two diametrically opposing forces, whatever they might be, maybe the will to life versus the will against life. The will against life has has lost, and the will to life, this inextinguishable idea, is prevailing. And then we get one of the most phenomenal endings to a symphony, I think, ever. We featured this on our previous episode of The Greatest Symphonic Endings, but it's worth playing it again in case our listeners missed that, that episode, because this is just one of the most interesting and fantastic endings to a symphony. I think we finally arrived at E Major, so let me play for you the ending of this symphony and then we'll, we'll just discuss it briefly. So in addition to being, you know, a really uplifting and triumphant ending, I actually think there's a lot of substance there worth worth discussing. So first, most importantly, maybe we hear the final return of this inextinguishable theme in the correct key of E major. And I think this final appearance of the theme, you know, we've heard this theme many times over the course of the symphony. It's been presented in the wrong key. It's been presented in battle contexts, It's almost like the symphony itself has been trying to extinguish, as it were, this theme, but as the name suggests, it's actually inextinguishable, this kind of will to life represented in music, as we heard from the quote from Nielsen at the beginning of this this episode. And so we hear this theme in all its glory, celebrating the fact that for this final time it can't be extinguished, it just revels in its own triumph E major. But then it starts to disintegrate like every theme so far has in the symphony. You know, the, the, the main idea so far has been disintegration. And you don't expect disintegration at the very end of a symphony. But for one final time, you hear it go away, get quieter. But then it grows for one final time and it ends in triumph. So this is the only disintegration that hasn't ended in barrenness or the theme being extinguished again, as it were, this one actually results in the ultimate triumph. And as it's disintegrating, we hear the orchestra play this idea. Keeps going. that is, is an E major scale. And, you know, I think there's an interesting subtext to this ending, to this entire symphony, because, as I mentioned, Nielsen wrote this piece in 1914, and in the musical world, there was a battle of sorts, a battle like we heard in this symphony, between the forces of tonality and atonality. Composers like Schoenberg, Weber, and the hypermodernists were trying to write music that got rid of tonality entirely. And tonality is this idea of keys, the key of E major, the idea of a scale, the idea that certain pitches have, there's a hierarchy to pitches. It's what makes so much music recognizable, predictable, and unpredictable for us. And I think there's this notion in this ending that the other inextinguishable force, not so much the life force, but the equivalent musical inextinguishable force is that of tonality. And this is a real affirmation from Nielsen that atonal music is not the music of the future, nor should it be. Really, we need to write tonal music, and this is something that he believed in, and he, he feels that this E major resolution maybe is more than just a simple resolution. It's an affirmation of the idea that tonality itself is an inextinguishable force parallel to this larger will-to-life force that for him is also inextinguishable. And then the very ending, the very enigmatic ending, if you listen to several recordings of this piece, you'll probably hear several different versions of this ending ending Because Nielsen himself was very unclear as to how this ending should be performed. Some performers, it's marked in different scores, different ways. Some performers continue this disintegration. And we hear the one timpani, the victorious timpani, play super loudly over a very quiet orchestra. Others, other additions, other performances like this one, you hear the orchestra start building to a final climax. It's fun to listen to different endings, different recordings of this piece um, and hear how they do the different ending and try to interpret this ending in this kind of in the context of this entire symphony based on how these different performers decide to do this. It's an interesting choice for the conductor. I don't know that I've made up my mind on this yet, but I think I like the way that we we just heard this performance by Thomas Dousgard in the Seattle Symphony, which is how it's marked in the new edition. It seems to be the most uplifting one in my in my opinion, but that's a topic for for conductors to debate for hundreds of years for us I think what we can take from this symphony it's a really optimistic message it's a phenomenal hybrid of the, the genres of absolute and programmatic music and I think what we can take away ultimately is this this notion of inextinguishability, both in music and in life. It's a really uplifting thing to think about, I think especially in hard times. You know, this was written amidst World War I and uh, not to relate the current situation to that at all, but what better than to have an uplifting message of the, the will to life, its inextinguishability now than, than ever. So I encourage you to go listen and explore this symphony It's one of my all-time favorite pieces. I'm venturing a guess that many of our listeners have never encountered it before. And keep an eye out because we will be back soon with some other lesser-known symphonies uh, from our guests. And so keep an eye out for that, as well as some other content we'll be bringing you over the course of this, this quarantine. As always, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Let us know how you're liking the show, and we will see you back shortly. Stay safe and healthy, everybody.